It's May 22nd, 2013, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I am Ryan Ozawa, and we'll be your geeks in residence for the next hour. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today is Leanne Miyasato from the Entrepreneurial Foundation to tell us about an upcoming poo-poos and pitches. Finally, we will explore the maker movement and plans to organize a maker fair here in Hawaii. We'd, of course, love your questions and thoughts as part of the conversation, so be ready to call in or tweet us. But first, the headlines. Two state agencies dedicated to boosting transparency and ethics in government are upgrading their websites to better serve the public and public officials. The State Campaign Spending Commission launched its new website earlier this month. The State uh, Ethics Commission, meanwhile, has made it easier for state officials and employees to file their required financial disclosure statements electronically. Though not yet fully online processed, the change should greatly reduce the amount of paper processed by the commission office. The Campaign Spending Commission was one of the latest state agencies to get an online facelift as part of the larger revamp of the state government's eGov portal. While much of the information is the same, the CSC says it's now presented in a more organized manner. The focus of the site remains the reports and fundraiser notices filed by candidates and non-candidates and a recently introduced searchable database of contributions, expenditures, and other disclosures now covers a period spanning from November 2006 through last year. On the Ethics Commission side, the new annual financial disclosure forms are now in PDF form and can be completed online or saved and submitted via email. The switch from hard copy forms will mean less paper, faster filings, and fewer errors. Commission Executive Director Les Kondo told Civil Beat columnist and blogger Ian Lin, uh, shifting to electronic filing will be a big plus for our clerical staff. It's a big step in the right direction. You know, I got a chance to sit down with both uh, uh, Les and um, Kristen from the uh, state campaign spending, and, you know, they're pretty excited about you know, just getting their departments uh, or, or commissions online and, and uh, having, you know, sort of a more appealing website. And because uh, the uh, Hawaii Gov folks uh, have sort of transformed all of the state's websites, I mean, so you know, these on are one part hand, Yeah, they're next in line. Yeah. But on the other hand, for example, the State Ethics Commission is, as a apparently as a legislative office, doesn't have the direct access to the the ICSD and those services, they're mm-hmm. saying that to go fully online would cost about $50,000 um, that they don't have right now. But at the very least, I mean, the old process was they would get paper forms submitted. And then, in fact, they would then scan them into digital format to file them and publish them. So at least they're kind of eliminating that dead tree step. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. you know, uh, definitely something that uh, Ian Lind, who was formerly a comment- commentator here on HBR, has always been covering, certainly something uh, of interest to us in terms of open data. I didn't even know that the Campaign Spending Commission is on Facebook and on Twitter, H-I-C-S-C, and in fact, they automatically tweet out when someone files their fundraiser notices. So if you're kind of, if you're a lobbyist or you want to kind of watch what uh, candidates are doing, that's probably a good Twitter feed to follow. Mm-hmm, good idea. The endangered Hawaiian petrel continues to be a source of scientific discovery and insight. Last month, we told you about the early findings of a project that involved installing 14 cameras to monitor the comings and goings of birds and predators at nesting sites. Now, a separate study by the Smithsonian Institution and its partners took a look at the fossil record of the Hawaiian petrel. And in studying over 17,000 petrel bones dating back 4,000 years, researchers say they can quantify the effects of human fishing activity. 
Well, the study funded in part by the National Science Foundation looked at nitrogen isotope ratios in the bird's bones. The ratios indicated which level of the food chain the birds rely on, with more isotopes meaning larger, bigger prey. The team compared the bone chemistry of these historic specimens to that of modern samples to see how the diet of the Hawaiian petrel changed over the centuries. And And most of that change appears to have occurred in the past several decades, coinciding with the rise of commercial fishing. Lead researcher Peggy Ostrom of Michigan State University said the endangered bird has apparently shifted to a diet of smaller fish and other prey in the last century. They also saw a decrease in population. She described the findings as alarming. In a statement, she added, Our study is among the first to address one of the great mysteries of biological oceanography, whether fishing has gone beyond an influence on targeted species to affect non-target species and potentially entire food webs in the open ocean. Well, you know, I think uh, the changing sort of uh, biodiversity in the ocean is something that we've heard quite a bit about. Uh, But this was an interesting study in that they could look at the isotopes of these, you know, fossilized bones and kind of correlate that to the kind of prey that what they the were petrol. eating. Yeah. yeah, so that's to me that's kind of interesting. And of course this is focusing on the petrol because it does its foraging over vast expanses of open ocean and that's hard to observe in any way to see what they're eating and you know how they're doing. So they look at these bones and in fact most research on this sort of uh, in this area focuses on coastal areas, you know, mm-hmm. the food and the the food webs along the coast versus the open ocean. So this was uh, definitely an interesting way to approach it, but you know, they're looking at this shift down the food chain, and uh, when the prey gets smaller, the bird population it can support gets smaller as well, and it coincides with the movement of human fishing activity off the coast and into the open ocean. And it's interesting how the petrels, the Hawaiian petrel especially, is getting a lot of attention because we did that story about how the uh, feral cats are attacking the nesting areas right, right. for these uh, petrels. So, uh, yeah, petrels are... Poor species are getting uh, they're, they're, they're beaten up, well, not only in the food chain, but uh, you know the, the, the cats are getting them. They're endangered for sure, for sure. Well, next up, the first ever Great Pacific Race will put human strength and endurance to the test next year on Monday. Uh, announced several details of the 2,100-mile rowing contest, which will run from Monterey, California to Hawaii in June 2014. With the entry deadline set for September, 15 teams of 38 rowers have already signed up for the race. The trip across the open ocean could take as long as 100 days, so the requirements to participate are strict. The specifications for boats to be used in the Great Pacific Race were set with the help of open ocean rower and past Bite Marks Cafe guest Roz Savage, with qualifying vessels said to cost anywhere from $15,000 to $47,000. And the entry fee is also steep. A two-person crew would have to pay about $25,000 for the privilege of using only their bodies to power their trip across the ocean. Engines and sails are not allowed. Well, the current record for the route is 64 days set in 1997, but organizers say that advances in boat design, materials, and technology will make it likely that many race participants will be able to beat that time. Teams of one, two, and four members have signed up from around the world, from the U.S. and Canada to New Zealand. France and Ireland. The contest will include streaming videos and live tracking of boats online. Now, I did put in a call to the uh, folks organizing this, and actually, you know, I, I called and Chris Martin, who's the race organizer, answered the phone. So I asked them a couple of questions, one of which is, um, are there any teams from Hawaii participating in this? And so far, he said that none have mm. have uh, uh, 
filed their admission or filed their um, you know sort of registration. And he encourages if there are any teams or one man or two men uh, teams that want to compete that he they he fully encourages that to happen. Well, it's interesting. I mean, there are some. There was one team interviewed in a San Francisco paper. Uh, one because San Francisco was originally thought to be where the race was going to originate, mm-hmm. but they moved it to Monterey because the currents are more favorable there. But there is a team, for example, where none of the people that will be rowing this boat have ever rowed for any particular distance before. Is that right? So, wow. you know, it's it's kind of being set up as this extreme test, test of endurance. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would say that I would be more, you know, confident if I were someone like Roz Savage, who's already made these journeys, than a complete newcomer. But, you know, a two-person boat could take maybe 40 days to make the trip. A four-person boat could take a month. Um, this is not a, a simple trip, for sure. Yeah, and, you know, uh, some of the boats that they've shown on the website look uh, fairly, fairly similar to what Roz Savage has. And Ross, of course, is a uh, consultant to this, and uh, so they're you know they're encouraging uh, folks to to apply. And then the other thing is that I asked him, where will they actually be coming in uh, when they reach Oahu? And he said they haven't really selected a spot yet, so that's still uh, something that uh, they'll let us know. Yeah, I mean they just they just announced the origin point on Monday, so they've got a, you know a little over a year to figure out where they're going to land. Any and- any teams out there that are wanting to maybe apply, you can go to newoceanwave.com. That's right. Now, if the United States has an official poet laureate, uh, which is an honorary post to raise awareness and appreciation of poetry, it should also have a science laureate. That's the recommendation of a bipartisan group of U.S. senators and representatives in a bill that was introduced earlier this month. Hawaii Democratic Senator Maisie Hirono and Republican Senator Roger Wicker from Mississippi introduced companion legislation in the Senate to House Resolution 1891 that says a science laureate would promote science education and celebrate scientific achievement. Well, H.R. 1891 uh, defines the science laureate as a nationally renowned expert in their field who would be appointed by the president in a one- to two-year term and would travel around the country to inspire future scientists. Senator Hirono said in a statement, As American students trail their international peers in STEM proficiency, the U.S. science laureate will be a national role model who can encourage students to learn more about the sciences. By elevating great American scientific communicators, we can empower students, especially girls and minorities, to get excited about science. The science laureate would be an unpaid post, and whomever is appointed would also be encouraged to continue doing their scientific work during their term. The legislation already has the backing of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Texas Representative Lamar Smith, who chairs the House Science, Space, and Technology Committee, is spearheading the bill. He said, Scientific discovery fuels the innovation that keeps our economy strong. To remain the world leader in a high-tech global marketplace, we must continue to inspire the innovators of tomorrow. Well, so if you're interested in tracking uh, this bill, you can go and uh, just do a web search on H.R. 1891, and its companion bill is uh, S-899. That's the Senate version, and they got both heard, I think, on May 8th, and now they've uh, both been referred. The uh, The House bill was referred to the Committee on Science space and technology, and then the Senate version went to the Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. Well, you know, and it's a feel-good bill. I mean, there's no money Money, attached to it, so you can imagine, especially with bipartisan support, that it will essentially, I think, has a good chance of happening. And in fact, most of the online chatter is of two natures uh, that I noticed. I mean, one, a lot of people are trying to figure out who would be a good science laureate mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, if it's going to be uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson okay. or Bill Nye. I'm, I, I would be rooting for Bill Nye, I think. And the other one is what would happen with a 
president that appoints someone with a different view on certain scientific, uh, shall we say, controversies. I see. Yeah, and right. what would what would happen there? But I mean, you know, we, you're right. If we have a poet laureate who advances the art of poetry, which mm-hmm. I am not saying is not valuable, mm-hmm. um, a science laureate makes a lot of sense as well. Good, good idea. Finally, a couple of quick stories that we wanted to share with you. A student team from the University of Hawaii at Hilo took top honors at the National Microsoft Imagine uh, Cup. Finals in California, the team Poliahu from UH Hilo entered the competition with a mobile app called Help Me Help. The application is focused on disaster relief and allows users to photograph and submit local hazards to emergency response personnel. The team will now represent the U.S. at the Imagine Cup Worldwide Finals in St. Petersburg, Russia, next month. And a very quick reminder, the monthly Wetware Wednesday networking event for software developers is taking place tonight after the show. Uh, Again, the featured topic is the Kinetic Labs Accelerator, which we talked about last week. Parking and appetizers are free. There's no host drinks, and that'll, again, and B, Wetware Wednesday tonight at 6 at the Pearl Ultra Lounge in La- Ultra Pearl Ultra Lounge. I'm not cool enough to know that place in <laughs> Ala Moana Center. Well, there's more on uh, going on for entrepreneurs in town. And now joining us here in the studio is Leanne Miyasato from the Entrepreneur Foundation to tell us about the poo-poos and pitches. Welcome to the show, Leanne. Thanks a lot for having me on, Ryan and Bert. Yeah, good. So now you've been involved with uh, Entrepreneur Foundation for a little while, and, and I've always uh, known it more for um, kind of a sort of social conscious uh, nonprofit that encourages a lot of the tech companies to maybe look at some of the uh, social, uh, let's say, efforts that they could give back to the community. But now with this sort of poo-poos and pitches, it's more of them getting in front of some potential VCs and maybe doing a, a business pitch? Right. We are trying to help entrepreneurs connect to VCs. And uh, our Poopers and Pitches event on May 30th, 6 p.m. at the Waikiki Yacht Club is a great networking event for entrepreneurs to meet venture capitalists. We have a couple of VCs coming in to town uh, one, Patty Glaza from Arsenal Venture Partners and Paul Weinstein of Azure Capital uh, will be coming to meet a bunch of entrepreneurs and listen to a few pitches uh, from uh, the ones that we've selected to present to them. So uh, we had one in April. It was a big success. We had we were oversubscribed, sold out, over 60 people at the Yacht Club. It was a lot of fun. People wouldn't leave. So that's how you know you have a good event. Now, uh, you are in- inviting some of these uh, venture capital uh, sort of mentors and contacts that you have, where where are you finding these? Are they uh, primarily from the mainland contacts or, or how is, is that part of your sort of extended network? They are part of our network, but they're also, uh, we're also kind of piggybacking on their trips to Hawaii okay. because they are um, attending the Blue Startups. The Accelerator is having a demo day the mm-hmm, following day. Mm-hmm. And so a couple of them are going to be in town for that. <laughs> Uh, but they also um, have uh, some money from the ERS pension fund, so hmm. uh, they they come to Hawaii to look at deals, and they are very serious about taking a look at quality companies here, and so we want to give them every opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. So you talked about Blue Startups, and we just mentioned the Kinetic Labs event uh, tonight at, at Pearl Ultra Lounge. So how does Poopoos and Pitches fit into this, this, this wonderful, I would say, you know, growing diversity of these opportunities for startups looking for support or invest, investment or business opportunities? Well, I think it's just another piece of the, um, you know, a, like as you said, a burgeoning uh, entrepreneurial scene. 
happening um, here in Hawaii. I think we're all very encouraged that there's a lot more startup activity happening. And um, so we want to offer our uh, entrepreneurs uh, in our community the, the chance to meet with some VCs who are serious about looking at deals and have money to put on the table. So how did you go about selecting the folks that will actually be doing the, the pitches? Some of them are our members. So Entrepreneurs Foundation has some member companies that have donated equity to us, and they are committed, as you mentioned earlier, Bert, to giving back to the community. So um, some of them are, we give priority to our members, of course, mm-hmm. but there are also other entrepreneurs in town who are have developed their companies to the point where they're ready to seek venture capital. And so we have selected a few of those as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the Entrepreneurial Foundation itself, um, you know, what its particular focus is and, and its activities apart from poo-poos and pitches? Right. Well, we are a nonprofit, and our mission is to get companies involved in philanthropy and community service. But um, in order to get them to do that, we like to just help support them in any way we can. So we're trying to build great businesses that will spin off great philanthropists. So um, we try to get them involved in uh, community service activities that fit their interests. It, it really just depends on the companies. Uh, but then I mentioned earlier the equity piece of it, where they give us equity, and if they have uh, an IPO or if they're acquired by another company, we can sell our shares. Mm-hmm. We use the proceeds of the, that sale of uh, stock to create a charitable fund for the company. So it's a way of creating new philanthropy without using cash, mm-hmm. using stock. It's how Google funded their foundation. Now, uh, can you give us a, a quick, uh, um, maybe a tidbit of who might be pitching? Well, or is that not secret? Quite, not quite ready to reveal that yet, but um, we did have a bunch of companies pitch at our first event. Sure. So, yeah. Um, okay, that's good. Yeah. So we had Cardax, uh, David Wadamos' uh-huh. company yes, yeah. pitching. Hawana Medical and uh, Patrick Sullivan pitched. Uh, Ibis Networks, which is a spin out from Oceanet. Um, Ian Kitajima pitched that one. Well, these are all pros. They don't need to. Practice pitching. <laughs> uh, we had uh, Sound Paper, Labels That Talk, Ken uh-huh. Birkin. Ken I'm Birkin, sure yeah. you know him. And a couple of blue startups companies, Farmly and Tlet. Oh, sounds uh, good. Luis Peterson's yeah. uh, startup as sounds well. Sounds like right. a pretty exciting. Well, give us a quick uh, um, website where again. we can yeah. check it out. Well, people can go to our website, efhawaii.org, and you can find a link to register for the event there. Good, and then you said that there's going. To, this is a second one, and there's going to be more. That's right. We have another one on July 11th, uh, same place, same time, uh, and we'll have a couple other venture capitalists there and a good lineup of pitches as well. Sounds good. Thanks, Leanne, for joining us. Thank you very much, Ryan and Bert. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Marion Ano and Ross Mukai to talk about makerspaces and the maker movement. What is fueling the maker movement, and why is it taking hold across the country? What's happening here in Hawaii? We'd, of course, love your questions or thoughts as part of the conversation. So please give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, you can also tweet us your questions at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. This week on Radiolab... The big mystery. How it is that just a bunch of these... Little wisps of jelly in your head, called neurons... Flashing on and off in your brain create... Thoughts, ambitions, passions... You. Even what you think of as your own intimate self. And how, in a flash, that could all change. In an instant, we can be completely transformed. I'm Jad Abumrad. Join me for Radiolab. Saturday morning at 10...
Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Bernard Liotar. And I'm Jackie Dunn, and we're co-authors of Rethinking Money. Next time on New Dimensions, we'll be talking about how new currencies turn scarcity into prosperity. Sunday morning at 11. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Marian Ano and Ross Mukai. When Marian is not working at the Hawaii Conservation Alliance as a capacity building program assistant, she's programming over at High Capacity Makerspace. Ross, meanwhile, is co-founder and managing member of Oahu Makerspace, which is a collaborative space for crafters located in Kaka'ako. And why is there a growing interest in makerspaces and hands-on building? We'd love to hear your questions and comments. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Marion and Ross, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Hi, Bert. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Guy. We're, we're really grateful for this opportunity. Well, you know, we'll give you a chance to um, earn that <laughs> gratefulness. <Sure. laughs> um, we'll start with a real basic sort of question, and, and this has been sort of asked often, which is, what is a maker, and why is it being sort of tossed around nowadays? We've never really heard of a maker before. What is a maker? Maybe, uh, Ross, you can help us understand that. Well, makers are generally um, kind of like artists, but not not necessarily an artist. They may be inventors. They may be designers. They could be programmers. Um, but what sets apart a maker is they make tangible things. Rather than create a service or offer a service, they produce something. They innovate. They create. They uh, they take something that exists. They make it better, or they repurpose it, mm-hmm. anything mm-hmm. like that. That As long as the process, what they're doing, produces something that you can look at and say, oh, wow, that's that's a finished product, and uh, it's something innovative that they've created. That's pr- pretty much what a maker does. And Marian? how about, uh, yeah, Marion, uh, because when I hear maker, I mean, I know that even a knitter might be a maker. Or, right, you or, know, or maybe a ceramicist could be a maker. Yeah, so, you know, how would you also characterize this movement that we're actually talking about, this this great interest uh, that's inspiring, you know, even technology people to get into doing things and getting dirty with their hands? <clears throat> Right. I I totally agree with everything that Ross said. Um, Makers are really people who have dreams and make them happen, I think. Um, They're doers. They're people of action. Um, They look at something and they're like, you know, they they look at it, they're challenged by it, and then they go ahead and make it. And Mm -hmm. I think whether it's virtual, um, whether it's a tangible item, metal, wood, um, jewelry, um, surfboards, kayaks. so, So the idea of, you know, well, there's been always people that have been hobbyists or crafters or uh, people that have uh, done, you know, let's say woodwork. Do you think the the, the maker sort of movement has been really uh, taking shape because, you know, in previous years there was always like a, a wood shop in high school or maybe auto, auto body shop in high school, and you don't hear about that anymore. So is this kind of movement – taking place of that and, and people are still wanting to do some hands-on stuff what's your what's your thought ross uh yeah there's there's always a lot of people that are they're doing <laughs> hands-on stuff uh, the difference is that uh in in years past a lot of the shop classes were more um set up for people who probably weren't going to go to college to get a job doing something hands-on and that's pretty much passed now that the focus in education is getting everyone into college now the people that are making things, um, they're doing woodwork or they're doing 
metal art, things like that. They're um they're not doing it as a profession. They're doing it because this is a passion or it's an interest. It's something that they they really just want to do. And a lot of people they take it to the next level. They'll turn it into um, a profession or a side job. They'll strike out as entrepreneurs mm-hmm, based on mm-hmm. what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of um, the reason for that revolution in um, in makers and the way that the um, you know it, it changed from a profession to an interest was the availability of the equipment and mm. the maker spaces, make magazine, tech shop. They they really um, they put that that uh, that power into people's hands. Uh, you know, and so you bring up a good point. I mean, you you have a space. It's called Oahu Maker Space. Can you tell yes. us a little bit about what went into your deciding to build out this this space? Well, the two the two <coughs> main points that I like to uh, really focus on in uh, a maker space are um, one is we kind of we distribute we democratize kind of the instruments of capital. So you don't have to. You don't have to sign your life away to build a factory, and mm-hmm. that's what that was one of the main things that Chris Anderson was talking about when he said to watch the movie Flash of Genius. He said, "Be a maker, make things, but don't be an entrepreneur." You know, millions of dollars into a factory, you don't have to do that anymore. You can go into a maker space, uh, a place like Wahoo Makerspace or Tech Shop or Maui Makers, High Cap, any any of these places that are full of people and equipment. And it's casual. You can you can innovate. You can work on things. Um, there's no huge penalty for failing, and because there's no penalty for failing, people are more willing to try. So that really um, supports innovation. People have new ideas. They'll go through iterations. They'll fail. They'll keep going because they haven't, you know, signed away their life on mm-hmm. on the instruments that they need to pr- produce it. And the other good thing about a makerspace is you end up with interdisciplinary cross-pollination, which is my favorite thing because maybe you have a machinist who's working alongside of a woodworker. They get the chance to talk. They get uh, to share, you know, all of all of their experiences. And they don't, you don't have to tap into experience sets that are the same as yours. You can tap into a lot of different experience mm-hmm. sets. And that gives you a fresh perspective with a lot of experience and I think that's that's one of the key things that that the innovation also comes from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the maker movement is spreading across the state and is not just here in Honolulu. And certainly we'll talk a little bit more about that. But if you are part of the maker movement, we'd, of course, like to hear your voice at 941-3689 or from the Neighbor Islands at 877-941-3689. And on that front, we have a couple of special callers to get yeah, to. Well, speaking of the Neighbor Islands, uh, Don Kosak is on the line and wanted to invite Don to share a little bit about his thoughts on the maker movement on uh, whichever neighbor island you're from. I think uh, mostly spending the big island is uh, probably most of the time, but I think you're also kind of traveling back and forth to Maui too. But uh, Don, welcome to Bite Marsh Cafe. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your perspective on the on the uh, maker movement on the neighbor island. Sure. Uh, I think all across Hawaii, we have a very strong movement happening towards uh, people uh, uh, doing it themselves. Uh, this maker movement. Um, uh, on, uh, on several of the neighbor islands, we have uh, very well-developed uh, maker communities and, uh, and also our own uh, uh, 
spaces uh, here in Hilo on the Big Island where I live. Uh, we have TechWorks, uh, mm-hmm. which was uh, started by Anthony Marzi of the East Hawaii Community Development Corporation. And uh, on Maui, we also have the Maui Makers Group. Right, and that's uh, sort of led by uh, Jerry Isdil? Correct. Now, Don, you're, of course, uh, with the Nalukai Foundation, and you're also involved in the entrepreneurial community and startups and, mm-hmm. and trying to build that up. How Could you quickly tell us how you see and the, the, the connection, the synergy, if you will, between makers and workshops getting covered with sawdust and uh, this, this perhaps a lot of people would say more Internet-based, software-based uh, startup community? Sure. Let me let me rise up above the sawdust to maybe thirty thousand feet and talk about the economy and jobs. Um, really, uh, I I was born in the generation and I inherited this madman economy uh, that I call it. You have manufacturer, and you have television advertising, and and that drives the majority of the consumer economy. Uh, I think that the maker movement is at uh, the start of kind of a, a revolution or a disruption to that uh, madman economy. Uh, you take makers, you add into the mix crowdfunding, which is a big movement in and of itself, uh, like Kickstarter or Indiegogo, mm-hmm. uh, and you mix in these new marketplaces that are emerging, uh, marketplaces like Etsy online uh, where uh, and eBay, where you've got a very sophisticated marketplace uh, for buyers and sellers to get together that operates on a global scale. So makers plus crowdfunding plus these new marketplaces uh, gives us this new maker economy, and I think we're just getting started with it. That's great stuff. And uh, how do you um, uh, see kind of the maker movement uh, on on the neighbor islands uh, is it is it developing sort of independently of what's happening on Oahu, or is there ways that uh, it can all sort of dovetail off of each other? Yeah, there's a lot of synergy. Uh, there are uh, different mailing lists uh, that we belong to, and uh, we do a lot of sharing of, of techniques, and we do a lot of visiting uh, between one another. Uh, a great number of us uh, visit the maker spaces on Oahu, and, uh, and we also get around between uh, Maui and the Big Island, so... There's a lot of sharing that goes on statewide. This is a very, a very social movement. Uh, it's not an isolated movement. The, the, the social aspect is, is kind of core to the whole maker movement. Well, we definitely appreciate you calling in, Don, to share, for, for sharing your perspective. And we certainly like seeing you uh, when you're able to travel here. And as a lover of Hilo myself, I love to come out your way as well. But uh, thanks for sharing your perspective. Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks Don, and uh, appreciate your calling in. Now, Marion, uh, you know, I was I was kind of curious what Don was describing, uh, how he had to get thirty thousand feet to get above the uh, sawdust. Uh, I'm always curious. You know, high capacity has always struck me as being more of a uh, kind of a software and developer. And you know, every time I go over there, there's there's people working on their computers. Um, do you sort of cross uh, the boundary between sort of the software development side as well as the, the maker space as well? Yeah, um, I mean, I might myself personally, um, you know, I, I tell, I, I've been telling people that I, I haven't really, um, you know, in the past, I haven't really done anything like tangible with my hands. But um, 
when I joined High Capacity, I had the intention of really like learning how to program and go into mobile app development. Mm-hmm. And um, a friend of mine, Ikaika Hussey, you may know him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He well, actually said, oh, yeah, you should, um, you know, check out this place, High Capacity. And like, you know, they meet up and they make these, you know, things happen with programming and stuff. And so I walked in. And um, I basically like approached Bob, one of um, our high capacity members, and I was like, can you teach me how to program? I know nothing about it, um, but I know I want to do this. And, you know, it's it's really the, the place that that made, you know, all these things happen for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, building on Ross's uh, uh, the question you had for Ross, I think I wanted to add that makers really um, do things, I think, out of pure joy. And I think that's like the number one intention. And I think the second in- uh, intention behind that is also to be able to share and enable other doers to make things happen for themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think I just wanted us not to miss that point that that's one of the lessons that I've learned as as learning about the maker movement and also going to the San Francisco Maker Fair. Mm-hmm. Well, you talk about the expression of pure joy, and we do want to talk a little bit about the uh, Maker Fair, the biggest one, the main one in San Francisco that just happened, and many Hawaii representatives were there. We will get to that, but I do want to note that, uh, of course, the maker movement has a lot of opportunities and uh, uh, you know ways that it can help in the on the education side, if you have a thought about uh, maker spaces and the maker movement, you can call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. But right now, uh, speaking of education, we'd like to welcome Neil Scott of uh, The Makery to Bite Marks Cafe. Neil, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Thanks for calling in. No, thanks uh, for, for sharing your voice. And uh, Bert and I had an opportunity to visit the Makery very early on, probably two or three years ago now. Um, could you share with us uh, what the Makery is and what it's up to today? Okay. Um, the Makery grew out of an earlier National Science Foundation uh, project that we had called the Invention Factory. We were trying to use invention as a catalyst to get uh, eighth graders and up interested in math so that they'd be able to cope with high school and college uh, technology courses. And we found that almost without exception, these kids had no what, no knowledge of how to do things with their hands. Mm-hmm. And so we uh, found that most of the school wood shop and metal shops had been closed. And, you know, they don't have home workshops and fathers helping them as we did. And so uh, we started racking up brains, what can we do to put, the ability to make stuff back into the schools. And I came up with a another grant proposal to the National Science Foundation for what we called the Makery. And this was, what could we put on an eight-foot by four-foot table that would allow kids to make stuff? And over the years, we've been uh, gathering small milling machines and um, more recently lasers and 3D printers and um, setting up the infrastructure, if you like, for the maker capacity to be actually in a classroom. And we have two schools on the Big Island, one at Pahoa and Connection School in Hilo, where it's actually integrated into the mainstream teaching now. And I go over every week to work there. Um, We have another part of it, which is teaching disabled folks uh, how to use computer-controlled machines to give them Mm -hmm. an advantage in the workplace. And... The stuff that these kids are coming up with just blows me away every time I go over there. The the artistic uh, sort of talent 
that emerges from some of these kids that you'd never imagine uh, would come up with things. It's just they keep producing. And so uh, we're at the point now where we're teaching a lot of people to do handicraft, artwork type things, and we're moving into making utility um, type products. And so I'm working very closely with Tony uh, Marzi on the Big Island to set up a public makery, which is a little bit different to the maker spaces in that we're putting very high-end professional machines and people have to actually go through training before we'll let them loose on them. Just that makes sense. Because uh, our goal is to produce people who will get high-end jobs. And um, our experience is that you know, if you're serious about it, you have to make a fair investment in learning you know, to use professional uh, software and machines. Um, and so we're starting to see some success there. We had a what is that, 16-year-old kid working on stuff here, and one of the people from one of the big corporations came to see what we're doing and sort of offered this young guy, he said, come and talk to me about a job, because they you know, had seen him working the machines and things, and he says, well, I can't yet, I haven't graduated high school. Right. But that's sort of the level that we're starting to see. So um, there's a lot of talent. In fact, the current program we have is called Technology for Untapped Talent. Hmm. You know, it's basically it's the same philosophy as the makerspace. Uh, that all the different makerspaces, you know, let people have access to the tools and the knowledge and stand back and see what, you know, what comes of it. Um, so, you know, we've been enthusiastic for this for a long time, and I'm glad to see, you know, it's starting to get out into the public areas now. That's uh, that's fantastic, Neil. It's glad to hear that uh, it's continuing to advance and you have some pilot schools. If somebody wanted to learn more about the makery program, um, where can they go? Okay, well, I'll hand over to Christine, our program manager, for that information. Oh, you have a couple people online then, huh? That's <laughs> that's con- convenient of you. Yes, yeah, sorry. Hi, I'm Christine, and um, if you guys are interested in contacting us to find out more about the makery, you can contact me. I'm um, It's Christine Antolos, A-N-T-O-L-O-S, and I'm at antolos at hawaii.edu. Also, my our phone number here is 808 808- Nine five six six nine four four. Sounds Fantastic. good. And thanks, then, Christine, for jumping on. Yeah, and uh, hopefully we'll get the makery to maybe uh, uh, jump in on this uh, mini maker fair that uh, might be planned for the near future. That's right. Uh, well, Christine and and Neil, thank you very much for calling into Bite Marks Cafe. It's great to get an update. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's good, and you know for. Uh, uh, all these activities that are going on out there, uh, do you see sort of a, a coming together of you know the different activities that are happening? It's definitely going to come together soon because we're finding a lot of spaces. Every day I find a new space. I'm a huge fan of uh, Dr. Scott's face, mm-hmm. space down in uh, UH Lab School. I just I happened to wander in there one day and met him and talked to them and saw what, what they're up to, and it's, it, everything is great. And it happens to me a lot that I'm walking around, I wander into another space who's doing kind of similar things. But it seems like everybody in the Kaka'ako area is kind of finding their niche right now. And, uh, you know, we've got um, Hi-Fi and Ward. They're doing mostly sewing stuff. Hi-Cap on the other end of Kaka'ako is doing mostly programming. And then you've got me. I've got the the large machines. We do CNC work and all of that sort of thing. So all of these spaces find their niche um, eventually. Someone is going to tie them all together, 
and yeah. we'll be able to all pool our resources. No, no, and that's that's good stuff. And uh, we'll we'll sort of brainstorm a little bit after uh, we come back come back from the break. So we want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Marianne Ano and uh, Ross Mukai about uh, maker spaces here in Hawaii. In fact, we'll talk about uh, the Maker Fair in San Francisco and perhaps Hawaii's first big <laughs> maker fair. If you've got a comment or a thought, you can give us a call at nine four one three six eight nine or toll free from the neighbor islands eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. This is Bite Marks Cafe. When doctors dispense drugs, do higher prices and societal costs come along with the prescription? Nationally known managed care advocate Joseph Peduta is in Hawaii for next week's Prescription Drug Summit. We'll talk with him tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. So she walks over to the car, and with crazy Hulk-like postpartum strength, rips off the side view mirror and throws it on the ground and said, now we're even. Join us for this story and more next time on the Moth Radio Hour from the public radio exchange, prx.org. Saturday afternoon at 2. Welcome back. This is Bite Marsh Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I am Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Marianano and Ross Mukai about the growing maker movement. What happens after you grow out of a maker space? And, of course, if you have any questions about making and building and, and doing things, uh, you can give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 or... From the neighbor islands or even from the mainland, you can dial one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine, and uh, we've got a bunch of callers on the line. And I want to welcome uh, Jerry Isdell from Maui to Bite Marsh Cafe. Welcome hey. to the show. Aloha. Well, you got some fans over here, Jerry. They started cheering. So, yeah. Jerry, you're with Maui <laughs> Makers over on the Valley Isle, and we've been hearing from several islands. So, why don't uh, you tell us a bit about the Maui Makers uh, space and what you're up to? Well, uh, I got Maui Makers going in 2010 when I moved over here after uh, helping to start uh, Crash Space in Los Angeles. Uh, my primary thing in coming over here was to start a maker space and bring the movement here. Um, and I was really happy to say that uh, although this was my, I think, sixth maker fair uh, back in the Bay Area this past weekend, I was really, really stoked to see about 20 Hawaiian makers there at the uh, at the fair, including a half dozen or so who were in the Mini Maker Fair producer workshop. I was standing in the back. Uh, I was volunteering to help set up the fair that day, but uh, stood in the back and watched people after per- person after person stand up and say, "Hi, I'm so and so. I'm from Hawaii." And you know, the the organizers of the fair afterwards uh, commented to me on it too. So uh, they they know it, and they're happy to hear that we're. Kicking things up over here. Yeah, so Jerry, I mean, you've you've been uh, going to maker fairs for, like you said, the last six years, and and you've you've probably been the one uh, doing it, uh, perhaps uh, maybe as long as as uh, Neil Scott has been doing it. But can you give us some perspective on how you're seeing it grow, and what do you contribute that growth to? Well, the the grow, uh, the system's been growing. The whole movement's been growing pretty well, heavily across the country. Uh, uh, back when we started Crash Space in 2009, there were uh, a few dozen uh, hacker spaces around the country. Uh, and 
now there's uh, well over a thousand uh, in the U.S. and a couple thousand, uh, I believe it is, over the over the entire world. A lot of that is a resurgence of of the people realizing that that we can make almost anything ourselves uh, with a small amount of equipment, uh, such as the stuff that Neil has and been talking about there with the makery. Um, and uh, a lot of people being uh, out of work or in a little bit tighter financial straits are looking at things and saying, hey, I can fix it and make it work, or I can take that and repurpose it to uh, making something that fits what I'm doing, or I can build it myself and, and not have to import it. And people are understanding that here in Hawaii we import so much of our stuff. If we can make some of it and not import it, then so much the better. That's a great point. And, you know, Jerry, you know, I think uh, if you've lived long enough uh, like uh, you and I have, I mean, you've seen this sort of cycle of of manufacturing, you know, go to Asia or elsewhere. And, and now there's this uh, growing interest on, on uh, us in the U.S., you know, sort of doing our own thing and, and creating our own manufactured goods. Yeah, and it's the, uh, the interesting thing to me on a lot of it is the difference between the uh, – uh, the scales of, of, of production, um, going you know to the the hundred thousands and millions of, of of units of things that people want to sell in the big markets. Yeah, you go to someplace that can produce them in large quantities cheaply. But when you're working in small quantity, uh, doing your production runs, having the ability to build it right there locally. Uh, is a really big help, or you know, just making a run of uh, a 50 or 100 of them because that's what you need. And maker spaces of all the different flavors uh, are a really big asset for that for small businesses starting up. Because you can go to the space, share some of your ideas, and then find some of the equipment and send people who will help you learn how to make them yourself. Uh, it's an important thing to note that in a lot of maker spaces, we are not job shops you don't come in there and say hey i want you guys i'd like you guys to make me something make me this or that we don't teach you makers kind of help the help we help those who help themselves mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we'll teach you how to make stuff fantastic so um uh, jerry tell us a little bit about your space and where someone can go to find more information about maui makers uh, maui makers.com will get you to our website we have a google group and a facebook page uh, the for the next uh, two weeks, we're having our uh, public nights uh, Thursday nights down in Punene, which is out behind the uh, the sugar mill here in Hawaii, uh, near the Punene School Community Workday Maui Friends of the Library. Unfortunately, we are losing the use of the building we've been in for the last year and a half mm-hmm. uh, at the end of the month, uh, and so we're going to be going uh, mobile. We haven't figured out where exactly we're going to be popping up. But in the next couple of months, we'll be popping up in a few places. A lot of people have been coming up with some very interesting suggestions and ideas. We've got a number of leads uh, on where we will be on a regular basis. Uh, meanwhile, we've got several other programs rolling with uh, what's known as the Maker Core. Uh, this is a program that Make, uh, Make, Maker Media's educational in- uh, initiative has come up with, kind of like the AmeriCorps. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've got a small number, about four of uh, the college students here who we've teaching in some of the maker ways. And this summer they're going to be helping out teaching classes at UHMC, College for Kids. We have a class coming up uh, in two weeks teaching uh, rocketry, then one on sewing LEDs, 
end of the month, we have a, a whole week-long class, which is titled Me, the Maker Generation. We're going to be teaching uh, middle high school kids about uh, programming the Arduino and 3D printing ah. and so forth. Well, Fantastic. Jerry, yeah. Thanks so, for calling in, and uh, we'd uh, you know keep us posted with what uh, goes on on Maui, and we'd love to tell your story here on the Bite Marsh Cafe. I appreciate that very much, and someday I'll get over there, and we'll actually do this call on uh, yeah, the we Space can, Gambit program we've been running, too. Oh, we want to talk yeah. about Space Gambit as well, but uh, thanks again, Jerry Isdale, MauiMakers.com. Well, thanks, Jerry, and of course, we uh, respect all the callers that have been uh, waiting patiently. We want to welcome John from Kaimuki to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hey, how's it? How's it? Hey, I, I had a question for Ross. Okay, he's here, waiting patiently. Oh. Hi, how's it oh. going? All right, well, let's well, finish that question for him. Where, where is Oahu Makerspace? Uh, we're at 527 Cummins Street down in the Ward area. Cummins is a uh, cross street between um, like Kauaihau, Queen, and Waimanu Streets. Okay, well, good good question. And, and uh, in fact, high capacity. Where's high capacity? In neighborhood. 307 Kamani Street, and we're um, parallel to Ward Avenue, Eva, Eva Ward Avenue, so... Come I would imagine that you can just go walking in Kaka'ako at this point and bump into a pretty cool space. Yes, yeah, you can. That's yep. true. <laughs> They're all over. Well, that's good. And, uh, you know, we, we want to get um, to both Marion and, and Ross about some of their uh, uh, adventures in San Francisco. But we also want to take a call from Leo from Haiku on Maui to uh, another Maui caller. We love our neighbor island callers. Uh, so welcome to Bite Marsh Cafe, Leo. Hi, it's me, Leo. I'm 12 years old. Ah, I'm, hi. Well, we'd like you anyway. <laughs> I'm a member of Mind Makers. Fantastic. Great. And, and so how do you like that program? Awesome. Oh, I'm really, I love it, and I'm really sad that it's, that it's moving. I don't really know where it's going to come up exactly. Oh, so uh, is it going to impact your involvement if it moves? Yes, it is. Ah, well, I know like some of the ideas are like a, a, a mobile makerspace and a giant trailer and things like that, and they can put it where somebody wants to host them. Um, what are some of the things that you've done yourself at uh, Maui Makers? Well, one of the things I've done is Jerry. He's, he's very helpful, and he's been helping me a whole lot with my Arduino, and he's basically helped me a whole lot with a lot of things. All right. That's great, Leo. Do you have a question for uh, our guest here? Um, no, I'm okay, thanks. You just okay. wanted to share your love for Maui Makers. Well, we and we love you too, Leo, and we love our callers from uh, Maui. Thanks for calling in, Leo. Bye. Okay, mahalo. Or Le- Leah. Please, <laughs> please stick with it, Yeah. even if they move. Hey, we have another caller waiting on the line. All uh, right. Matthew from uh, Honolulu. Thanks for calling, Matthew. Welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Hi, how's it? Uh, I'm one of the co-founders of a high capacity. I just wanted to ask Marion Ross, Favorite things from the Maker Fair was. Oh, oh good that's a good, that's a good prompt for our next question. The Maker Fair in San Francisco. We you know we wanted to get to this topic. So real quickly, Marianne, what were some of the things that were really highlights from San Francisco Maker Fair? You know, last night I spent um, a few moments at two thirty in the morning, like listing down, looking through my photos, and here's just you know kind of a synopsis. There were uh, like sort of like uh, mobile. Creatures made out of cardboard, um, Google Glass, ShopBot, um, cupcakes on wheels, um, reverse engineering, a trum, which is a cross between a drum and a theremin. And if you haven't <laughs> heard of a theremin, I looked it up. I Googled it. Yeah, you got it. Um, you can sense the player's hands in the air, and it makes different sounds based on where the hand is. 
Um, and then what another thing that was really cool because I'm a lover of music is the repurposing of walkie talkies um, to kind of create like this sort of DJ booth uh-huh. at the Maker Fair, and I thought that was really amazing. Now, now this Maker Fair in San Francisco, how big is it? Can you give me an idea of so like the scope and the scale of it? Well, the Maker Fair in San Mateo, it was the entire San Mateo County Fair, including parts of the parking lot. I would say it was, I don't have the exact numbers of it, but it felt like about a half a mile long, maybe a quarter mile wide. Mm-hmm. It was, it had to have been at least 2,000 people there because anywhere you go in the whole fair, it was crowded shoulder to shoulder. Now, if you got, you know, you've got people that have done some craft things, but you also have people that like Google showing their glass. I mean, that's a wide range of participants. I, I got mean, to try out the glass. It was it was outstanding. You did like wow. Well, I want one as soon as it comes out. Now, uh, <laughs> oh, oh, here's a theremin. Very nice, right. very nice. The guy that invented that, he also he was also responsible for the the bug in the the Great Seal. Wow, ah, it's, okay. it's radio radio reflection. Well, uh, thanks, Matthew, for that fantastic question about cool things that were in San Francisco. And perhaps on that front, we have a last caller, uh, Lindsay from, I believe, the Kaka'ako Don Quixote area. Lindsay, welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I just came back from the Maker Fair myself. You did? Nice. How did yeah. you like it? It was fantastic. Um, I think my favorite thing, I loved everything that was mentioned, but I think one of my favorite things was Gary Ellsworth of the Commodore 64 fame was debuting her augmented reality gaming Mm. system and Ah. there's kind of a dramatic backstory to this she got fired from valve that's right that's right Mm -hmm. yeah so she got fired with she's working on this project with a bunch of people um so she's like you can't let this project die this is amazing so they ended up giving her the project you know keeping a few they backpedaled a little bit tried to keep a few of the hardware items but she had already invented better ones and she worked on this project with, with her team in a living room for about two months, and they debuted it at the Maker Faire. It was, it's going to revolutionize gaming. It's amazing. And she is, she is quite a, a, a wonderful woman herself, too. So, uh, so Lindsay, really did, you, did you know about this before going to Maker Faire, or did you happen to run into her, her booth? I just happened to run into her booth. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah. And so this is, you're right, the scale is um, enormous. You know, you have uh, you have certain certain inventions, certain devices that were being shown in the Maker Fair that you know are going to, when they hit the consumer market, will completely change. There'll be huge disruptions, and you get to see them, uh, you know, while eating a turkey leg and, you know, having a good time <laughs> at the fair. It's pretty cool. <laughs> eating a turkey leg, you're making me hungry now. Well... <laughs> Thank you very much for calling and sharing your experience as well, Lindsay. Yeah, of course. Love you guys at Fight Marks. Ah, oh, thank you. That's sweet. I'm feeling the love. Now, you know, we have a, just a couple minutes more, and I wanted to get the, Ross and Marion to tell us a little bit about the plans for Hawaii's uh, sort of mini Maker Fair, and maybe kind of tell us a little bit about, you know, you've experienced a, a Maker Fair, the, the, the large version of it. What is a mini Maker Fair, aside from being mini? <laughs> <laughs> so me and Marion are both on the... Um, the Hawaii Mini Maker Fair Planning Committee. It's it's a pretty large committee at mm-hmm. this point. Uh, we have a lot of uh, people from different um, entities, you know, coming out and supporting the idea. The basically the big dif- the biggest difference between a Maker Fair and a Mini Maker Fair is that Maker Fairs are produced and planned and hosted by um, Maker Media, uh-huh. 
And they do Make Magazine. Yeah, the guys who do Make Magazine, it's an offshoot of O'Reilly Publishing. The mini maker fairs are independently organized and planned by uh, more local entities like companies, maker spaces, uh, communities. I got it. So, <clears throat> I mean, any maker fair with that sort of branding is really being run by the folks at the, at the Make Magazine. Right, and the mini maker fairs are local, community-based, uh, planned, organized, and executed. Now, do they give you f- any sort of uh, support, I guess, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, let's say, uh, some branding or some collateral? Uh, we do get some exposure through um, Make's websites. Um, even even though it's a mini maker fair, there's still an application mm-hmm. and an uh, approval process to go through. We have the we have the application um, submitted already. We're waiting for um, approval, and then we have to select the venue, find sponsors, right. um, participants. Now, um, Bert and I do an event called the Geek Meet, and it was sort of like that idea, like how do you bring people who do interesting things and put take them outdoors and, and have them show off their stuff, but certainly a meaning maker for something that I have been just desperately looking forward to happening here in Hawaii. Uh, Marion, how can somebody get involved or find more information on the on this planning for Hawaii's first meaning maker fair? Um Go to your browser and check out 808makers.com. Ah, okay. And I know that, the, like you said, it's, they're still trying to find a venue, even a date. So a lot of things are up in the air, but I believe there's a survey to see what you know what people will be interested in doing and what, what kind of things they would want to. Right, 808makers.com slash survey or slash wiki slash survey. Well, actually, the survey is up on the site, so yeah. you can actually uh, run the survey from... Oh, if you go to 808makers.com, it'll, yeah, it'll take, take you, right you immediately to the, to the survey. survey. That'll, that'll help us ge- kind of generate uh, levels of in- intent of people who want to who wanna participate, who want to present things, and that'll, that'll help us size the venue a Fantastic. lot. Sounds good. So we will keep in touch, and, of course, you guys will let us know uh, what's the latest on the Maker Fair. I think they're still kind of working on a date and everything, right? Uh, the tentative date right now is October 19th, and that's kind of what we're going to push uh, we we definitely want to get it done in 2013. All Sounds right. good. We're excited. So Marianano is with High Capacity Makerspace, and Ross Mukai is the co-founder of Oahu Makerspace. I want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you very much, Bert. Thank you so much. Great to have uh-huh. you. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. If uh, you can join us next week when we will be getting an update on the Hawaii Space Flight Lab. And if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org. And, of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And you, we leave you with the song pick of the week. you got to watch the video of this. Uh, the band is called The National, and the song is called Sea of Love. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Trouble will find me If I stay here, I'll never leave If I stay here Trouble will find me I believe Joe,